0: Well, you may be aware that the uh, sermon title is a bit of a takeoff on a sermon title that uh, dates way back to uh, July the 8th, 1741. Uh, it's a very old sermon, in fact, about 270 years old, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a sermon written by American theologian Jonathan Edwards, and it still remains Edwards' most famous written work. It's widely studied by Christians and historians, providing a glimpse into the theology of the Great Awakening back in 1730 to 1755. When Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon years ago, he hoped somehow that the imagery and the message of the sermon would awaken uh the audience to the horrific reality that awaited them should they continue without christ and as the story goes the uh, edwards was interrupted many times before finishing the sermon by people moaning and crying out what shall i do to be saved and so as i said uh, his his sermon continues to be a leading example of a great awakening sermon back in the 1700s. Well, this morning I I thought uh, the text actually leads us to quite a different thought, not so much sinners in the hands of an angry God, but rather God in the hands of angry sinners. And that seemed to capture the passage this morning. We're moving these days uh, and weeks uh, into the Easter uh, season, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, only a couple of weeks away. So we're going to divert a little bit this morning from 1 Peter and move right into the Easter theme. There are many important questions in life that deserve our due consideration. I want to put in front of you a question this morning that I think is the most important of all. It's the question that was asked 2000 years ago by a man named Pilate the Roman governor of Palestine he framed it in those words what shall I do then with this man with Jesus who is called the Christ what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ what shall I do with Jesus it's the question that all of us need to answer We cannot ignore the question because to ignore the question is to answer it. To ignore the question is to say, I will not do anything with Jesus. And that is the answer. What shall I do with Jesus? Well, it depends on who you think Jesus is. One day, God's going to say to you, to me, what did you do with my son, Jesus, who I sent to earth for you? 2000 years after his death he's still the topic of conversation it's amazing he still hits the front cover of the major magazines time magazine newsweek magazine jesus the christ so as we de- as we start our descent uh, down to the easter runway i want us to think of two things this morning number one that the trial of jesus christ clearly demonstrates the purpose of Christ's mission. And secondly, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ clearly demonstrates the passion of Christ's mission. So the purpose and the passion point to who he is, his identity. So first, the trial of Jesus reveals his purpose. As you read the various accounts from the Gospels, you discover that there's not just one trial that Jesus went through prior to his death on the cross. He was tried by the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme religious court. And he was tried by the Roman courts. And I think you might say as well that he was tried by the people's court. On the night he was arrested, he was first of all taken to Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, and then secondly, that night he was, he was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest and ruler of the Sanhedrin, along with other members of the Sanhedrin. But it appears that the Sanhedrin officially met the next morning. So in fact, Jesus had three trials by the religious leaders before being turned over to the Roman authorities. The Jewish authorities were looking for some evidence to make a case for themselves. Matthew 26, verse 59, summarizes it quite quite well. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. The Sanhedrin found him guilty. Guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God. Now, blasphemy might be serious, in a Jewish court but not very serious at all in a Roman court so the very evidence they thought they could use against Jesus in fact was not very good evidence at all so they lied in Luke chapter 23 verses 1 and 2 you see their tactics then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate and they began to accuse him saying we have found this man subverting our nation He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ a king. Now, those are all the trigger points to get the attention of the Roman court, and Pilate in particular. All three charges are lies. Never did he subvert the nation. Never did he refuse to pay taxes. And never did he say, call me a king in the context of being an earthly ruler or a threat to Rome. Pilate was probably very amazed to find that that morning he had a capital case on his hands and at Passover at that. Pilate privately interrogated Jesus about his kingship because that was the crucial issue to him. And he concluded that he was guilty of no crime. Pilate, as you know the story, sends Jesus off to Herod because Herod's in town. And Pilate, the astute politician that he was, immediately saw the opportunity to get Jesus off his hands and get rid of the situation. Herod couldn't get anywhere with Jesus, so he sent him back to Pilate after mocking him. Now, in all of these trials... Can I remind you of how Jesus responded? The high priest asked him, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, Yes, it is as you say. Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Yes, it is as you say. When the accusations rained down hot and heavy from the high priests and the religious leaders... He said nothing. I love the message translation. It puts it this way Pilate asked him again, Aren't you going to answer anything? That's quite a list of accusations. Still, he said nothing. Pilate was impressed, really impressed. That's Mark's gospel. Here's what's striking about the trials Jesus never claimed to be a good man, he never claimed to be a good moral teacher. He never claimed to be a great teacher, although he was all of those. What he did claim was, I'm God. Tell us if you are Christ, the son of God. And his response, yes, it is as you say. Thomas Jefferson was a great man. He was the third president of the United States. He was a remarkably bright man. He wrote a lot of things. Nevertheless, he was a man who could not accept the miraculous elements in the Scripture. And did you know that he edited his own special version of the Bible in which all references to the supernatural were deleted? Jefferson, in editing the Gospels, confined himself solely to the moral teachings of Jesus. The closing words of Jefferson's Bible are these. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone at the mouth of the sepulcher and departed. That is the way he concludes his version of the Bible. Thank God that is not the way the story really ends. What are you going to do with somebody who claims to be with, who claims to be God? If he says, I'm a good teacher, you could agree and say that you are. If he says, I'm a good man, you could agree and say, yeah, that's true. But if he says, I'm God, (laughs) what are you going to do with that? Because if he is God, there are some profound implications that come with that. So at this trial, they had to decide. And the truth is the trial goes on. The trial moves to this courtroom today, right here inside this gymnasium. Tell us, Jesus, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he answers, yes, it is as you say. Now, how do you respond? What decision will you make to determine what you will do with Jesus? And by the way, if you meet anybody someday, and you might, who claims to be God you have three options one, to believe he's an idiot the guy doesn't know what he's talking about he's mentally deficit the lights are on but nobody's home sad case, very deluded or second, you could say I think the guy's an imposter he knows exactly what he's doing he's a shyster, he's a deceiver he is a con man, his angle is money and he's out to get my money Or thirdly, you can say, I believe you. I believe you're telling the truth, that you are God. I don't think you're deluded. I don't think you're a deceiver. I think you are who you claim to be. Now, if you respond that way, then it makes sense that you fall down and worship this person, that you obey this person, that you give your life to this person. Why? Because he's God. In the courtroom this morning, Jesus is still on trial. Is he deluded? Is he deceived? Is he really the one who he said he was? God? What is our verdict? Jesus allowed himself to go through these series of trials. He could have put a stop to them. He really could have stopped it at any time, demonstrated his awesome power, and said, that's enough of this. But he didn't. He chose to go through the trials so there would be no doubt as to who he was. Secondly, let me move to the crucifixion, which demonstrates the passion of Jesus Christ. Jesus' crucifixion was a public event. It's one of the most well-attested facts in all of history, that Jesus was crucified That there were crowds of people there. Even the sign over the cross was written in three important languages of the day. Crucifixion was invented by the Carthaginians and was adopted by the Romans. It was the most horrible manner of execution ever devised. And it was used for the lowest type of criminal. Death comes not only from loss of blood, but from exhaustion. The victim hangs immobile until all energy is, is drained. And you know what's amazing to me as we read the Gospels? It's amazing to me that not one of the four Gospels report any details of Jesus' suffering, almost if, as if they were avoiding any cheap melodrama. They simply say they crucified Him. They crucified Him. They could have gone on to great lengths to describe what that looked like they didn't the Bible says before the crucifixion he was mocked and he was assaulted they scourged him scourging was awful they would tie your hands strip you down to the waist then two men called lectors would hold those whips that would have a cat of nine tails in it nine long strips of of leather and each of those strands of leather they'd tie two things a One, a sharp bone that would cut the skin, and then bits of lead that would bruise the skin. They would whip, and they would whip, and they would do it over and over again, but not more than 40 times. The law said you could only give 40 stripes because it would usually kill a man. So they always gave only 39. Jesus' back was one bloody pulp even before he went to the cross. He was so exhausted. He was unable to carry the cross all the way to the execution hill. The soldiers grabbed Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd. And he was given the privilege of carrying the cross of Jesus. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Nails through his hands and nails through his feet. Death came through suffocation. If you hung on the cross for any period of time, the muscles around the chest cavity would begin to be paralyzed. And when all the weight of the body is held in that way, eventually you're able to breathe in, but you can't breathe out. The the soldiers, the Romans, would take a person's knees and bend them a little bit and nail the feet to the cross. So a man would be hanging there in absolute agony, moving up, moving down, on the cross in order to find some air to breathe. It was a barbaric, incredible, painful way to die. That's why the Bible tells us that the Romans would eventually break the legs of the person on the cross. They couldn't stand up anymore and then they'd suffocate. What would motivate a person to die such an awful death If you didn't have to, if you wanted to say stop, if you wanted to call 10,000 angels, it's called love. It's called love. It's called passion. Jesus was passionate about giving his life so that we might have eternal life. Somebody had to pay for our sins. There's a law of the universe that says you reap what you sow. If you break the law, you have to pay. If you get a speeding ticket, you have to pay. If you kill somebody, you have to pay. If you break God's laws, you have to pay. But Jesus decided that he would pay. That he would pay for us. And he paid it all. I should have paid, but he paid for me. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So I should have paid with death. But the rest of the verse says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ came down to this earth, went through all the trials, went through all the mockery, went through all the scourging, and then died on a cross to take our punishment. By the way, do you remember the name Timothy McCarthy? He was the guy that stepped in front of John Hinckley and took a bullet for President Reagan and saved his life. Happened back in the early 80s. Became an American hero. And uh, when the firing started, he leapt in front of the president, took a bullet in the abdomen, After he was released from the hospital, he he said to the press that he had no regrets about the incident, that he was only too glad to be able to make the leap before the president when the time arrived. By instinct, he just jumped in front. He literally took a bullet for the president. Yet at Calvary, the president of the universe took a bullet for me for you. He paid the price for us. He was passionately in love with his creation. So much so that he came to pay the penalty that we should have had to pay. There will never be anyone in history who loves us any more than God does. And remember who Jesus said he was? Pilate asked tell me Jesus if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said It is as you say. Those simple words. It is as you say. Paul, the apostle, explains this great act recorded in the annals of history. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He adds to the explanation in Ephesians. By the death of Christ, we are set free. That is, our sins are forgiven. How great is the grace of God which he gave to us in such large measure. The crucifixion demonstrates the passion of Jesus. Who else but God would love us so much that he would die for us? A few years ago, the top historians of the world gathered together, and they made a list of what they considered to be the hundred most significant events in the history of the world. Some of the significant events mentioned were the invention of the printing press, the invention of the airplane, and so on. Number four on the list of most important events was the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made fourth place in the lineup. They characterized this event as the life of Jesus Christ, that his life was so exemplary that he made it to the fourth position. What they didn't talk about was his death, and more amazing than that was his resurrection, which we celebrate in a couple of weeks. Maybe Jesus was still on trial in the minds of the historians who gathered. Good man? Oh, yes. Good teacher? Oh, yes. Good leader? Oh, yes. Son of God? No answer. Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Christ is still on trial in the year 2012. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? I'd like to turn this gymnasium into a courtroom for a few moments now. I'd like you to be the jury this morning. You'll have the opportunity to pass judgment on who you think Jesus Christ is. I'm going to call seven witnesses to the stand. Seven historical witnesses. I'm going to Ask them to come up front and uh, give testimony. Their testimony is already a matter of record. So first I'm going to call Peter to the stand. This is Peter. Peter, you knew Jesus for almost three years. In that time... You saw him do some pretty incredible things. You saw him walk in the water. You saw him feed the 5,000 in a miraculous way. You were there when he healed your mother in law. You were there in the Garden of Gethsemane. You were there at the cross. Peter, who do you say Jesus is? I believe he is Jesus, the Christ, the Savior son of the living God. Thank you. I call Martha to the stand. Martha, you and your sister Mary were friends of Jesus. So was your brother Lazarus. A couple of days following your brother's death were quite traumatic for you. Jesus waited two days before coming to visit you. Your brother Lazarus was already in the tomb. Jesus told you that your brother would rise again. You agreed, but you were thinking he meant in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to you, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me Will never die. Do you remember his question that day? He said, Do you believe this? What was your answer? I said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. I called Thomas to the stand. Thomas. You were one of the original twelve disciples. You followed Jesus for three years. You knew him very well. You heard his message clearly for 36 months. And after Jesus died, you doubted. You doubted that he would be raised again. In fact, you even said, I'm not going to believe. I don't believe that he's going to come back to life. I don't believe in the resurrection until I can personally touch the nail prints in his hands and feel the scar in his side. And Thomas, remember, it was a week later when all the disciples were together. The doors were locked. And Jesus walked right through those doors and he said to you, put your finger here, see my hands. Put your finger here, see my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas, what was your response? The only thing I could say, my Lord, my God. I called Judas to the stand. Judas, you also were an apostle. You also walked with Jesus for three years before he was crucified. And you knew his heart. You knew his message. Judas, you had your own agenda. Money. You planned his arrest. You looked for just the right opportunity to turn him in. Jesus gave a piece of bread which he had dipped in a dish. Gave it to you. He knew you were the one that would betray him and Satan entered into your heart and for 30 pieces of silver you handed Jesus over to the authorities. But after it was all over, you regretted so much what you had done. You tried to give the money back. You were seized with remorse. You confessed to the chief priests and elders and they said, that's your problem. That's your responsibility. So you threw the money into the temple and you left and you went out and committed suicide. Judas, what did you say before you committed suicide? I said, I've sinned for I've betrayed an innocent man. I called Pilate to the stand. Pilate, you were troubled by this man. Jesus you didn't really see any rationale for his execution your wife had troubling dreams about the situation you were caught in the squeeze politically you washed your hands of this situation but yet you gave permission for the execution to go ahead after cross-examining Jesus what did you have to say about this one who is called the Christ I find no basis for a charge against this man. I call the thief on the cross to the stand. Sir, you broke the law. You were duly charged and convicted and condemned to die. You agreed that you were guilty as charged. What did you say in front of all the people who were watching Jesus die on the cross? We deserve to die for our evil deeds, but this man hasn't done one thing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Finally, I call one of the soldiers to the stand, the centurion. Mr. Centurion, You are one of the men who put Jesus on the cross. You actually put the spikes in his hands and his feet. You hoisted the cross into the air. You put the spear into his side. You were there when the sky was darkened. You heard Jesus cry, it is finished. You knew that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What do you say about Jesus As you're standing there at the cross. He really was the son of God. He really was the son of God. Thank you. But what is your verdict? Pilate asked the question. What shall I do with Jesus who is called. The Christ. There are only two responses. One is to write him off and say, this man in history has nothing to do with my life. Nothing at all. He was just another man. He has no claim on my life. And I ask you this morning, are you willing to gamble your life on the fact that Jesus was just another man? The other response is to say, he is who he claims to be. Therefore, he deserves my allegiance and my commitment and my obedience and my full surrender for the rest of my life I'll give him my life and I will journey with him till I die